0: welcome to episode 10 of the Deciphered podcast by Bain Company. On this podcast, we unpack the stats to give you an in-depth perspective on different topics relating to fintech and the financial services industry. I'm your host, Adam Davis. I'm an associate partner at Bain Company within our global fintech and financial services team. The title of this episode is Consumer to Business Payments. What will the future of retail transactions look like over the next 10 years? And I'll provide a little bit of background. So retail payments is both a rich and growing industry, with Bain and Company estimating the total revenue value at $356 billion, with a projected annual growth of 6% over the next five years. It's not just alternative payments methods such as digital wallets and account to account services that are enjoying growth. Traditional credit and debit card volume is also thriving, and consumers and regulators in many markets continue to replace cash. The balance of power between traditional And new entrants is slowly shifting. In this hotly contested market, some 90% of today's revenue pool could migrate to software vendors, major technology firms, and other contenders. It is worth saying at the moment, at this point, that the stats within this show come from Bain & Company's upcoming Future of Payments brief, which is titled Consumer to Business Payments, A Strong Growth Outlook, but only for the well-prepared To discuss this some more, we've got together some of the best and most experienced minds on this topic uh, in the industry. First up being my co-host, Kareem Ahmed, who is an expert partner at Bain, leading a substantial amount of our payments work, but also whom is a co-author of the upcoming brief. How are you doing, Kareem?
1: Doing very well, Adam. Thanks for having me to share a little bit of the fun that you have in your day job.
0: (laughs) It is a pleasure. Uh, It's always good to have you on. Joining the two of us, uh, we're delighted to welcome Kelly Devine, who's the president of UK an island for Mastercard, Kelly. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Great to have you. How are you doing? And it would be great to get a view on your role at Mastercard and and some of the things that you do in your in your day to day role. Well, hi, Adam. Hi, Kareem.
2: I head up the business in the UK and Ireland for Mastercard. So that's uh, for those of you who don't know, Mastercard we're we're kind of the glue with a bit that enables retailers banks to talk to consumers banks. So. Working with partners across the whole payments ecosystem—one of the true ecosystems that exists out there. The words used a lot, but this is one of the one of the real ones. So, a great pleasure to be here
0: today. That's it's great to have you. And we're also joined by Colin O'Flaherty, who's the head of SME for Barclaycard Payments. Colin, great to have you on. Again, a description of your role, what you do on a day-to-day basis, would be great.
3: Hi, hi everyone, and thanks for inviting me along. Great to be here. A little like uh, Kelly explained for MasterCard, we are across a lot of payments in the UK as both an issuer and an acquirer. And my specific role is relating to supporting our SME businesses, again, with their payments out need and also their payment in needs. And uh, yeah, delighted to share a few perspectives today.
0: Thanks very much. Right, let's get on with the show. And we'll start, as we always do, with the answer first. So Kelly, Colin, for your benefit. We sometimes use the concept of an answer first. It's essentially having a relatively formed quick answer with the facts, the stats, the brains from Bain, et cetera. We always adapt it on the podcast. We always look for a 30 second answer, as I say, of saying that the last few podcasts it's never 30 seconds, but we'll see what we can do. To so the top line question, which is consumer to business payments. What is the future of retail transactions or what the, might they look like over the next 10 years? Kareem, I will start with you as you are a pro at this. Yes, yeah, thank you.
1: Well, let's get it going then, uh, Adam. So what do I think the future of retail transactions looks like over the next 10 years? I think they're going to be a heck of a lot faster approaching what we in the business call real-time. I think they're going to be relatively free. I don't say absolutely free, but a lot cheaper today for businesses and consumers uh, than they perhaps are today. And then I think we're going to see quite a bit of innovation around the whole experience of making a payment, which means that all of the fuss and bother we'd have to go through when sending money abroad, for example, or sending money to somebody we haven't sent money to before, which again, in the business known as you know authentication, identity verification, I think a lot of that fuss and bother is going to disappear, making payments you know a lot easier for the layperson to engage in. That's
2: my story and I'm sticking to it.
0: Thanks, Karim. Uh, Kelly, I'll come to you. My answer
2: is uh, bearing in mind I used to work for someone who worked at Bain so I, I've been drilled uh, secondhand in answer first. My answer is that they won't look like anything, at least to the consumer. So I think it's quite easy to imagine a future where retail transactions are practically invisible. you know at the moment if you're buying something in the physical world, you, you probably stand in a checkout queue, you have a physical card, maybe a phone, you're tapping a physical terminal, maybe you're doing it twice because you've got a card and a loyalty app somewhere. You get a paper receipt. It's, it's a very physical experience. I think it's quite easy to imagine a future where you just walk out of the store and all of that stuff happens somewhere in the background. So that's my answer. It, it won't look like anything. It will just be seamless and somewhere in the background.
0: Go cool. And
3: uh, Colin? So given I agree with both uh, <laughs> Kelly and Kareem, I might actually be able to stick to 30 seconds. The only thing I would add is they will be increasingly personalised. So they will be specific for the need of the retailer or of the consumer. So that that I think is going to be an increasing dynamic that we'll see over the next few years.
0: Great stuff. We're going to move on to the body of the show. Three centuries, essentially. The first one is really just the current state of play. And Kareem, I'll start with you. We know that banks monopoly, I guess, across the wider global payment market is sort of being shaken up by non-bank challengers in the UK, we see that firsthand. In addition to that, we're well, obviously, as we mentioned at the top of the show, seeing regulation come in. In the UK, it's, you know, all sorts of different and wonderful uh, potential policies coming on things like VRP or central bank digital currencies, open finance, next iteration of that, wider in Europe with PSD3. I suppose starting this out, if you look at traditional players, card schemes, fintechs, merchant acquirers, big techs with big digital wallets, et cetera, which providers, which industry players do you think have sort of been driving the change versus reacting to the change and how do you see that evolving in the market in maybe the short term not necessarily 10 years
1: yeah let's dig into the meat of it so it's clear i think that the change is being driven by some massive shifts in technology that have been occurring in the background right so this whole shift towards an api-enabled economy has opened up the world of payments, which I, you know, my mental model was always these walled gardens uh, that belonged to banks or belonged to card networks are breaking down by virtue of the fact that you have the technology to expose those services now to people who aren't specialists in those services. Um, And I also think that people have realized just how much uh, profitability is locked up within these, you know, within these systems. And so that's attracted a whole, whole bunch of new entrants into the market, right? So this is what we, you know, commonly refer to as the sort of the whole fintech challenger model. And you're seeing that across banking. You're seeing that across payments and transaction facilitation. You're seeing that across lending and so on and so forth. So people coming at this from a non payments background, looking at all the nonsense that, you know, used to exist within payments and in some cases continues to exist and saying, well, we can, we can do better than that. That's been the impetus, I think, for a lot of change, combined with a generational shift in behavior from consumers who are digital natives, you know, growing up with a smartphone, as in the case of, you know, my young ones, surgically attached to their body, it feels like, right, who are not going to step into a branch, who are not going to, you know, wait, uh, you know, two or three minutes for a transaction to, 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 to clear. So the combination of technology shift, combination of behavior, right? And the response has been uh, fascinating and in some degree uniform across the globe. There is a palpable sense of urgency in the incumbent companies that we spend a lot of time with around, okay, we have to figure out what this means for our business models. And we have to figure out how we are going to participate in the new version of what these services look like. And that's translating into a lot of emphasis on revamping technology. That's at the core, I think of the response where the incumbents are starting to realize that they are somewhat hamstrung by having you know, neglected technology as a, as a key asset last for decades in some cases. But the other and I think more fundamental shift that's well underway in a lot of the institutions is realizing that the traditional approach to going to running the business and dealing with the customer uh, don't work any longer. Those approaches are somewhat outdated. So you're seeing lots of payments companies and banks, changing their organizational structure, going from traditional product-based silos or channel-based silos to creating cross-functional teams that can respond very quickly to very local needs in individual markets. And that's a complete paradigm shift for the way these companies are run. So, you know, it's sort of traditional when you're selling fear and change, right, for a living to talk about the new companies are going to eat your lunch. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case, but what I think is fascinating is to see sort of new entrants, traditional established businesses, creating partnerships and creating ecosystems within which all kinds of new and interesting services can be delivered. In large part, responding to what consumers are calling out for, right? And that is a better experience, a cheaper experience, a more intuitive personal experience as Colin mentioned earlier. So I'll put those thoughts out there and I'm sure Kelly and Colin will have a lot to say on on these.
0: Kelly, I'll, I'll probably come to you now. Some of the things which Cree mentioned, obviously, in terms of the overarching trends then have got sort of other connotations to it, especially if you're sitting in Mastercard's position as you guys are. I guess of those trends, which ones specifically, I mean, I'm sure they all interest you, but specifically interest you maybe within your role within the UK? And which ones are you, I guess, reacting to and be, or being, I guess, more proactive in addressing just by virtue of some of the in- innovations that are coming out of MasterCard at the moment?
2: And, and really interesting what Kareem just said there. We've, we've just been on that journey ourselves of shifting away from a more product-led organization to, to focusing on who are our customers, how do we understand and serve them best, and then pulling, as you say, that sort of multi-functional team together to serve the customers better. So we would definitely echo that one because we've been on that journey ourselves. In terms of the trends that we're most invested in, it, I mean, it's tricky to answer because payments is not short of trends, is it? There's, there's any number we could talk about. Perhaps a couple that are particularly interesting to me. I think one is the future of wallets. I think I hope we're going to see some real change here. It's quite an exciting one. You know, you can imagine uh, the wallet of the future. Yeah, it's going to house your your cards, of course, but your banking, your digital IDs and passwords, your driver's license, loyalty cards, you could go on and on and on. You can imagine the power of having all of that in one place and how that enables the personalization, for instance, or the intuitive experiences where all those things are joined up that that others have talked about already. So I think that's one really exciting trend. One of the interesting elements of that, I think is going to be the importance of security, because clearly that sounds exciting and interesting in terms of the potential of bringing that all together. Maybe sounds a bit scary as well. So I think anytime you're thinking about payments, it has to be underpinned by security goes with that saying. And I think the other piece is, is conscious consumerism. And we talk about this a lot at Musk card. How do we help people to make good decisions? And, um, You know, the way that you go into a supermarket at the moment and there's a little, you know, there might be a little ring on it helping to let you know whether that bag of crisps is good for you or not. You probably know the answer already, but you look at the ring hoping it will be green just in case. What's kind of that same, uh, that same equivalent in sort of ethical consumerism? How do we think about measuring that? And we're already on that journey with our own carbon calculator, but there's a ton more road to follow there to help consumers make really good
0: choices. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on one thing you said, and then Colin, I'll come to you. The shift of becoming less of a, I guess, a product-led organization, but more sort of multidiscipline, multifunctioned. multi how has that got, I mean, with, without going into the extremities of detail, but has that been a, a difficult change to make or is it actually everyone was kind of on board with it and you're actually reaping the results now as a consequence?
2: I think it's in one level, it's been relatively easy because everyone gets it. Everyone wants to serve customers better, understand customers better. So in, in terms of buy in and engagement and people wanting to make the change, it's quite easy. I think to drive behavior change, you know, that that want. what does that mean for how we behave differently when I come into the office on a Monday morning? That's slightly trickier. That takes a little bit more time. So I'd say we're getting there. We're reaping the rewards. There's enthusiasm, but to change behaviors of a lifetime... We're probably a year or two out before it's fully up and running and we're nailing it in exactly the way we would like to.
0: Colin, I'll come to you and probably turning our attentions a little bit to the SMB market in particular, which historically, chronically probably neglected to a degree up until it's become very fashionable to serve SMBs. You know, the growth of the revenue within that specific uh, subsegment has been accelerated significantly over the past few years. Interestingly, from the US, you see sort of the launching of these sort of uh, vertically integrated platforms, ISVs. The light speeds, the toasts of the worlds, those who are actually, you know, sort of acting as the software of trust, if you like, for, for a variety of different smaller merchants that sit underneath them. And, you know, the revenue that are going through those organizations from a US perspective is predicting is going to go up about 66% up until about 2026. So significant growth in revenues that they're taking. I suppose for you within the SMB segment, how important are those organizations? Do you see the same sort of proliferation over here in the UK and in Europe that we have in the US? And where do you see again, some of those trends fitting in within the SMB context?
3: Yeah, uh, I think we're probably not at that level yet, but certainly uh, that it's a direction of travel. And I think Kareem touched on it earlier when he mentioned the importance of partnerships. When I think of the difference between traditional payments players and let's say newer payments players, it's important that not all of the traditional players are created equal or are the same. So I think I'm I'm lucky enough to be in Barclay Card, which has always focused very, very strongly on payments. So I think we've been able to innovate throughout our history. What the newer players have done is really drive the pace of innovation. And I think the customer centricity and really for SMBs and for other customers creating consumer-like uh, expectations and consumer-like experiences, and that's where we as a, you know, a traditional player, I guess, need to make sure we match up. Sometimes that's through our own creation, but we can't do that in every single instance because what you'll see again with the newer players is often they will target a specific part of the ecosystem yeah. and do that very well. So we tend to be across the entire ecosystem. So we need to decide where are we going to do it ourselves and where are we going to partner? Uh, and so those partnerships, I think, are, are really, really important to us, whether it be with ISVs or with some of the other partners that we work with. That's a really big focus uh, for us. Uh, the, the only other point I would make just on that customer centricity, whether it be for SMBs or or more generally, is the regulator is also driving that change. So if you look at consumer duty, for example, in the UK, which is, I would say, uh, a transformational shift, in expectation, that really is about giving customers what they need, what they want, what they deserve, uh, and I and I think it's an interesting uh, way that the regulator is approaching it as well. Which obviously we're committed to meeting. So I think that will add to the competitive dynamics that we see as well, and, and which I think is to be welcome.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the rollout of that and just how it's adopted and how it manifests itself in reality. I think it's a super interesting um, piece of policy, which is isn't too far away now. I think it's coming in in the summer. End of July. End of July, yeah. Just moving on to cards very quickly. Card volume is projected to grow, but only around, I think, 7% annually through uh, 2032, which is in line with, I guess, overall volume growth. Down from 9% growth or annual growth since 2018. And it's lower than, only slightly lower, to be fair, to than the annual growth projected for an, account-to-account payments, which we've put at around 10%. There are some significant headwinds for cards. So, you know, headwinds being things like, you know, obviously the rise of A2A payments, uh, interchange caps, which you can probably see being more voluminous as we go through the years. As you said, Kelly, you know, the rise of digital wallets and what that might mean for, you know, integrated A2A mechanisms as well. Kareem, I'll probably come back to you. Uh, How do you feel about sort of your thoughts on card growth generally? I know it is quite sort of uh, demographic and geographically based. You look at sort of incumbents monetizing against some of these trends and then also some of making a bet on cards now, would that be where you would set up a business if you were going to do one from scratch or actually are you looking at alternative payment methods to uh, for for real growth?
1: Yeah, it's a complex topic to unpack because uh, I think the the picture varies dramatically depending on which country you're looking at, right? But just to take a half step back, I mean, what the reason cards as a payment method are as powerful as they are is because they had sort of cracked... The twin problems of moving money quite efficiently, uh, but also giving the consumer a relatively easy interface. And as Kelly pointed out, it's it's still heavily a physical interface piece of plastic, increasingly now embedded in your in your phone. But the usage, right? uh, How do you use it? You know, that's that's been really easy and, and uniform across the globe. So when you start uh, looking at how newer payment forms, you know, might actually replicate that growth, they have those two problems to solve as well. How do you move money between counterparties in you know, a business that's taking a payment from a consumer or a business that's paying their suppliers, right? And how do you actually make that act of payment as simple or as eventually seamless, invisible, right, as Kelly mentioned earlier? And the A2A a experience is actually uh, fascinating to watch based on which country you're looking at. You know, I've, I've been you know, visiting family in India for the last, you know, 25 years. Uh, We're now at a point where you practically don't need cash in India any longer, which is a staggering statement because of the rise of A2A a for the first in the main instance, which has sucked a lot of cash out of the economy. And you've got... Uh, apps like Phone Pay and Google Pay, right, and uh, which are now allowing everybody, by the way, heavily dependent on the rollout of reliable broadband infrastructure across the country, heavily reliant on the penetration of cheap but reliable smartphones across the country, means that, you know, the veg- the vegetables stand at the bottom of the road, uh, right, which is a completely sole proprietor, informal business, just as easy for them to, you know, take payment via a QR code. Interaction, which is effectively facilitated by UPI, which is the a to a account to account, you know, rails in the background. So in countries like India and Brazil, you're seeing that problem being solved both the money movement problem by virtue of government-sponsored infrastructure and the interaction problem by virtue of smartphone proliferation and then smart things like, you know, QR codes being used very, very cleverly. You know, shift to the UK market and that picture is very different, very well-functioning, heavily banked country. Uh, here, it's sort of a comfort with card payments. Somewhat clunky, but, you know, reasonably efficient money movement infrastructure and backs and chaps and faster payments, right? Which means that, you know, so the question then becomes, what's the imperative to move? What problem are we actually solving, right? And so we see Brazil-India as an archetype of a market where there is a huge amount of cash to be taken out and a very aggressive activist regulator who's pushing Right. To democratize payments and pushing to reduce cash. Those markets, A2A a is absolutely growing like crazy by far and away the fastest growing payment method. Contrast that to a UK market where A2A a is growing. But I actually don't see it, you know, becoming sort of a major threat to card payments, particularly debit payments, because a lot of those problems have already been solved, right? In terms of cash and so forth. Our view is that it will sort of take its place in the, in the payment lineup. With a share of somewhere in the, you know, sort of 10, 15, 20% of volume eventually transitioning to A to A in very specific kinds of verticals. And then the big sort of dragon to slay out there is the credit card payment in the US, right? That market is, you know, some massive proportion of the total profitability of the global payments industry by virtue of very high interchange rates. And a high spending, you know, high GDP per capita, per capita a sort of payments market, and finally we're starting to see the early warning signs that the dominance of cards can potentially be challenged. You know, note all the caveats in that sentence, right? Because you're now starting to see real time clearing infrastructure emerging, far from done deal yet. And you're seeing this reliance on digital wallets starting to grow quite fast, right, with the likes of Cash App, Venmo, PayPal uh, in, in the U.S. That confluence is really what you need for cards to be challenged in the U.S. And we are predicting that cards growth will slow pretty significantly in the U.S. over the next five to ten years. So different countries, different archetypes, different problems are being solved in each of those countries.
0: Kelly, I'll just ask you, I mean, not necessarily for the MasterCard house for you, but from your perspective, if you're looking at card volumes at the moment, the rise of of A to A payments, potential, you know, innovations that you can come up with to be able to sort of amalgamate all these different payment rails into, you know, your offering and what you do, what excites you? Where do you focus first? And to Kareem's points on, you know, volume changing as per the geographies that you're in, is there anything that sort of stands out to you as a, as an interesting, you know, soundbite or something to focus on?
2: Yeah, and I, I think Kareem nailed it with this idea of what is it that we're actually trying to solve for. And I, I, I think the space for everything and and how that space is filled is going to be driven by the need of that particular payment. You already see use cases. So I think about buy now, pay later, for example, where you see, you know, to a consumer that looks like quite a simple experience, but sitting behind that, there might be a card payment and an account to account payment sitting behind that. The consumer isn't thinking about that. The consumer doesn't care which which payment functionality is sitting behind it. They care about whether it meets their particular needs in that transaction. And to some extent, exactly the same for the retailer. They're not wedded to what the, the type of payment is. They just need to know it's going to work for them. Is it going to be frictionless? Is it going to be cheap, but while still being frictionless and safe and secure and all of those things? So I don't see a world where it's going to be this one wins or that one wins. I see a world where all of these things are going to have their space to play in perhaps within one transaction, they, they might even all be playing. It's going to be very, very need-driven, very, very use case-driven. You know, if you need a super cheap payment uh, that doesn't have to be fast and efficient and, and doesn't need uh, a bunch of bells and whistles around the edge of it, that fills a purpose and it does, you know, a huge proportion of of, of payments and you know, salaries and direct debits and utility bills and it kind of makes it all run. And then when you look at other kinds of payments, people want other things. Security is super important. Real time is super important. And then you're going to choose a different payment. So I, I agree it will be interesting to see if and when it settles. But um, what we're going to see is commingling. We're not going to see one winning over here and another winning over here. We're going to see proliferation of, of it all playing different roles, different jobs, depending on, on what it is that, that the individual is trying to get done.
3: Yeah. And, and Kelly, Kareem, I was just going to jump in and say, I think from a UK perspective, the, the interesting piece will be what is the influence of those other markets that you referred to, Kareem, on the UK? Cause I agree within the, you know, ecosystem of the UK itself and transactions within the UK, I think there are some need, but it will not be growing much quicker than general card payments. However, will the broader global environment influence that for cross border? Which is one of the biggest, um, you know, trends that we see, obviously, is the increase in payments cross-border. How is that going to play out? And I think that's going to be where where it'll be really interesting to see. And the, the other point I would make, Adam, just quickly going back to where you started and the trends that we're going to see over the next 10 years is that at the moment, somebody still needs to push what type of payment they make, whether it be card rails or A2A or whatever. It'll be interesting to see if AI and the development in AI can start prompting for the merchant, for the consumer, what is the best in this particular instance and why. That would be maybe a development that we might see in the next 10 years, but, you know, let, let's see how that plays out.
0: We'll come to sort of the implications of data strategies and AI in a set, but it is a, um, I think its influence on payments in particular and payment choices is, uh, is a fascinating growth area. Colin, I'll stick with you. We've sort of moved into sort of the future of payments, I guess, in that section. But I wanted to talk a little bit about embedded payments, if I may. We referred to it beforehand, but really the proliferation of wallets, especially connected devices, wearables, but now really cars, technology where, you know, you've now got the payment sort of uh, ingrained, integrated into a vehicle, not necessarily vehicles in a car vehicle, but just a thing where you wouldn't have expected it before. So, you know, you're having payments acceptance basically anywhere. Kelly mentioned about ecosystems, you mentioned about partnerships. Is this again, just another reinforcement of the partnerships play or are there ways in which you're looking at moving up or down or or playing different roles in that value chain in order to serve these new distribution points, if you like?
3: Yeah, I think it's gonna be a major growth avenue for the the industry at large. It already is growing very quickly, as you've alluded to. Predominantly for us, it's about partnering. It's not a one size fits all partnership, right? With different, with different players in that ecosystem, the partnership will look different. And I think there is still a very valuable role for trusted financial services players. Because at the end of the day, customers and merchants want to make sure they know the money movement is going to be well managed and say there's a lot of brand equity and experience that's built up that I think they value. What we need to do is make sure that we integrate really, really well with those partners who are creating slick customer experiences and do that in a kind of bespoke way. And And that I'd say is where our predominant focus is. I don't think we have the right to win in every single area by ourselves.
0: Yeah, I was just going to mention just off the back of that, the one thing that springs to mind to me is sort of, well, there's a lot of things, but fraud prevention, risk, understanding, you know, if you are sitting in the background of that payment, but that payment is actually going through another, you know, organization and, you know, might not necessarily be banked by you. How do you know who that end customer is? Because, you know, you haven't necessarily onboarded them in the first place. How far do you think the industry needs to evolve in terms of uh, being comfortable with that? Or do you think, you know, Kareem, you said at the beginning that, you know, you saw sort of ID&V and and, and identification almost becoming seamless and, and invisible from where I'm sitting right now, seems like a, a bit of a Nirvana state, considering most of the innovations are in that space at the moment. But Colin, I'd be, I'd love to know some of the innovations or some of the suggestions that bark kind of got around that space. So how do you build confidence within that value chain to be able to supply to payments to organisations where the end users maybe you just don't know?
3: I touched on regulation earlier in one of the, the other responses. And again, that's been critical here. So part of it is driven by um, retailers and consumers, but also, again, by the regulator. And if you look at something like strong customer authentication, right, um, which which happened recently, we did a study at Barclay Card, which showed that three quarters of uh, SCA compliant mm-hmm. retailers had seen online payment fraud decline since March 21. And on average for those, it was a 25% decline. So there's huge value to be added when you get this right. So we created a, a product called Barclay Card Transact, which is obviously issuer, uh, you know, it's issuer agnostic. Um, and that's what I think is going to be important. We need to create solutions that work for the entire industry and that are, you know, compatible uh, generally. Uh, and I, I think that's going to need to be the, the trend that we see uh, across the industry generally.
2: I think if I can, it applies both ways around as well. You talked about in the comfort of, of banks, for example, supplying payments in new contexts. It's also the comfort of the consumer to use a payment in a new context as well. And if you think about most of the messaging that you get as an individual at the moment related to finance, it's probably a lot about fraud, you know, don't click on anything, don't give your details to anyone, don't do anything that feels a bit weird. And some of this embedded payment stuff is 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 going to feel new and different. And how are people going to feel comfortable if their car could pay for things? Who's going to feel comfortable with their payment details sitting in their car, for example? So I think it does come back to that trust piece of how do you create trust within that ecosystem? And I think for established players, that's perhaps easier to do. But I think for new players who are trying to drive the innovation, that's a real question for them of how do they drive that innovation but but deliver that trust piece at the same time? Maybe that's where the partnerships come in.
3: Yeah, and and Kelly as well, a lot of the embedded infrastructures that we talked about just before are linked to that one ecosystem. So businesses like yours at MasterCard, which is across the entire ecosystem, somebody like us at we process one third of the transactions in the UK, give or take, you know, how do we add value to interlink those different ecosystems so that you can make smarter decisions based on information beyond what any one partner may otherwise have? I think there's a huge value to be added there um, as long as we can have customers willingly signing up and seeing that value.
1: Absolutely. And just to sort of close that point out, I think, or or I don't know, you tell me. What, what I think is really important though is to give control back to the consumer, right? In a way that they are, gives them sort of comfort that their information is being used responsibly. At the moment, that control does not exist, right? If you just reflect on how much somebody like uh, you know one of the big search engines or one of the big tech companies blows about your personal life we've done that right and regulation has not kept up um, nor have the tools necessarily kept up and i think the invisible seamless nature of identity verification right can be combined with this concept of sort of the, the the wallet right where the functionality allows you as a consumer to selectively expose pieces of information for a purpose and you have continued to have control over it. So if I'm actually applying for a car loan versus I'm trying to get, you know, an installment payment through versus I'm actually buying a house, I would expect different degrees of sort of information sharing, but also the ability to selectively expose, you know, the sort of the key pieces of information and not others. And that is the promise of digital wallets, I think, in the future, right? Particularly when you start thinking about, you know, some of the functionality that we're seeing the blockchain providers to develop, right? And that's the piece that's really exciting. Because it unblocks, you know, without having to compromise, it unlocks functionality without having to compromise on consumer security and consumer control. And uh, otherwise, this whole thing, frankly, starts to feel a big, big brotherish, right? You start talking to a small business and say, you know what, it wouldn't be wonderful if all your financial flows, all your credit history, all your procurement and purchasing history was within one place. And it's like, that sounds terrifying, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think we have that problem to solve, right, as a, as an industry.
0: Picking up on some of those points and talking about, uh, you talk in the paper cream about what we at Bain called a future back, but it's more sort of a, how do you approach strategy to sort of combat some of these trends? You talk about strategy in itself, sales and marketing and data. just wanted to pick up the point of sales and marketing first, because I'm sort of incorporating brand into that. Just going back to what uh, Kelly was saying in terms of, has the consumer got the trust in that organisation? I guess, how do you see sales, marketing and brand evolving in this? And as I said before, you know, in the embedded nature of payments, things have become more fragmented, but the customer needs more trust to be able to, you know, actually adopt some of these new technologies. Do you see the investment in those areas going up? And how do you see that specifically evolving? Because it's a really interesting space, which maybe hasn't really been given due attention in the context of payments before.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And the investments are going up and they're evolving in very interesting ways. I mean, there, there is an old fashioned bit to this, right? It's true 20 years ago, still true today. You have to know who your customer is. And it is still surprising to us as we engage with big and small companies alike where that fundamental insight about who you ought to be selling to, where you have product market fit, right, is still fuzzy. So we invest a huge amount of time with our clients on just getting razor sharp based on analytics, right? Where is their growth and profitability in the market? And then really deep understanding of the customer, the buying personas, you know, the needs and so forth, right? As I said, that's pretty old-fashioned. We have some new tools at our disposal to do that right now. But underneath that, you have to have a sales team or a a go-to-market function that understands that the nature of channel is changing. It's no longer a distributor. It is something as sort of amorphous as a partnership where you are one service provider in a whole host of other, you know, sort of uh, services that are being provided to the end customer. So that's the nature of embedded payments, right? If you're a payment provider today, you're dealing with a software company on the other side. So understanding the nature of the channel shift is where the future back strategy comes in play. In 10 years, in 15 years, are we really going to be looking at banks as the only providers of a certain set of financial services? If not, who, who are the other participants? And then you start to gear your channel towards that. I think the other piece that, you know, we see a huge amount of value in is just the way in which we, you communicate value proposition, in which you communicate, you know, sort of benefit to customers, right? Again, the old fashioned bit is always sort of walk a mile in your customer's shoes. True 20 years ago, true today, right? But still we see a lot of companies going to market with things that speak, you know, of things that they hold important rather than what the customer cares about. So the nature of B2B selling, I think, is fundamentally shifting, you know, driven in large part by the fact that the amount of information that's out there in the market about you as a provider far exceeds anything that it has historically. So if you have a clever customer or prospect on the other side, they are going to know a lot about you before you've even had a conversation. So understanding that and then sort of building on that, I think cuts to the heart of what brand strategy needs to be going forward. And then also what the basic motion of selling, advisory, consultative selling, whatever you want to call it, right? Has to become. And I really think that that is an area where we're seeing investment picking up in, you know, investment in analytics, investment in intelligence gathering. But also, frankly, the format and the presentability of that information changing quite a bit um, such that, you know, this is one of those areas where B2B selling in particular has already changed, you know, dramatically over the last sort of five to 10 years and will continue
3: to change very, very quickly. Firstly, I agree wholeheartedly with what Kareem uh, said. I think it makes a lot of sense. I see it play out day to day you know, managing a business, which uh, I run our marketing department for BarclayCard as well as my SME responsibilities. And so I'm I'm managing a large sales force and customer management team, but also trying to be smart about how I digitally communicate uh, with our customers and with our prospects. You know, several years ago, when I started doing those types of roles, they were probably managed in isolation. You had your marketing team and you had your coverage team or sales team or whatever you want to call them. Increasingly, the power of data is that you're feeding both channels with the same data at the same time. So that when a customer wants to speak to me instead of, you know, go on to the online or mobile channels, I am aware of what they have done in the mobile and online environment, even before they come to me. I'm therefore able to give them a much better experience uh, than if I'm operating in isolation. And I think that really, for me, is the power of data that we're able to, you know, speak to the customer about their need or their wants at a particular moment in time in a personalized way based on everything they've told us, whether it was verbal or digital at any point in time. And, and that, I think, is where the two come together, because whilst we talked a lot about emerging trends and the digitization of payments, there are very many customers still who want to speak to somebody, whether it be in a retail store or whether it be in payments, and there are very many more customers who want to do a bit of both. They want to do some things digitally, they want to do some things in person or on the phone. And I think we've got to respect that whilst we we get excited about moving the industry uh, often in a digitised way for various reasons, including vulnerability and others. Some customers just want to speak to somebody, and we got to respect that, and we got to make sure that we elevate the experience we provide there just like we want to do in digital channels.
0: Kelly, I'll I'll just come to you on the point of data specifically, really around open banking as well. We are potentially in a world where, from a regulatory perspective, we could move from open banking to open finance, which would open up, in theory, different types of data sets to the regulation that was brought into the UK, which then tends to set a precedent in terms of what then happens elsewhere, really from the AIS side, as well as the payments initiation side. How bullish are you in terms of, open banking, and I suppose retrospectively, how much do you think that it's uh, underpinned sort of the proliferation, obviously, of A2A in the UK, but more around sort of an acceptance of a new way to pay, data that you can receive off the back of it and what you can do with that. So just customers' preferences to to almost do something new, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I I still think it's it's very early. I mean, lots of people are using it. I think six million, last number I saw. But I don't think we've even started to to touch the sides of the true power of of what this can bring. So so I, I'm bullish on the the future of the potential for it. I I think there's huge potential for the things that we do today to just be done better. And Carole, you talked about it earlier. The idea that you could deploy your data really effectively in a way that makes sense for you. I mean, anyone who's applied for a mortgage would know that that's a pretty difficult thing. And and perhaps there's a way to make it easier. Um, the potential is huge, but I don't think we've even started to, to see it yet. But, and I think it will take a generation, if I'm honest, to, to truly surface some of the really exciting things that we've talked about here. Some nearer use cases, things like better credit decisioning. You know, I, I think there are some nearer use cases that we can see line of sight of in the next three to five years. Third party providers being able to, to, to leverage data to better develop products and services. The personalization that we were talking about We're going to see a whole raft of change, but I don't think some of the the biggest changes are going to happen super soon. And the regulator can create the framework. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of work to go on to say, okay, what's the right framework? But ultimately scale is going to come, I believe, when we can find those exciting use cases that actually make things better for people. If I can get better credit when I need it at the right price for me, that's going to change my behavior. I think all of this, everything we've been talking about comes back to, what cream at the beginning, which is what are we trying to solve? How can we actually take a problem that someone faces today and use all these wonderful tools and technologies to actually change the experience of that consumer? That's for most people who aren't, you know, excited about the technology as perhaps those of us on this call up. Um, that's where it makes a real difference.
3: Kelly, I agree completely. The 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 best use case I've seen so far is is in credit decisioning. And um, that's a personal perspective, but that's where I've really seen it work well. Uh, and I think we're still trying to find the scalable opportunity which customers buy into and really give us permission to to use that data in their interest
0: let's leave it there that was fantastic thank you so so, so much uh th- the time does fly and thank you to everybody for listening to this episode uh, of of deciphered I'm going to go around the group just wherever you the best places for uh, listeners to get in touch with you whether it's LinkedIn Twitter whatever you like just let me know. Uh, Kelly, I'll start with yourself. Yeah, LinkedIn. That's where I'm at.
2: Cool.
3: Um, Colin? Same here.
0: Great. And Kareem?
3: Yeah, same here.
1: And I think uh, Bane.com does a reasonable job of telling the world who all of the partners are in the different places. So... <laughs>
0: and you can uh, and you can find uh, the decipher podcast on all your favorite podcast channels uh, if you enjoyed that please leave us a preferably five star review on apple and spotify and also please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode going forward uh, thank you so much that was great really really insightful and we'll uh, we'll see you next time for more <laughs>